Mai Hairamai Kiara and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. Kiara Inika, Yoda Alison. Well, look, it's good to be here today, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about historical fiction. Um, we've got some contemporary stuff and a futuristic book as well. Oh, nice! Well, I'm glad that you've is... been holding up the end of contemporary and futuristic because mine's all been historical recently for some reason. It's all pouring in on the request shelf. <laughs> yes, and sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason about that. It's just is the way it's just the way the cards fall, isn't That's it? That's right. Yeah, on the day. Well, look, I'm gonna. I'll get started because I'm gonna do a halfway through review. Um, it's a book I'm halfway through. Um, can't wait to finish it. Now, it's called American Fever, and it's by um, an American um, woman, a writer called, and her name is Dori Aziz Amna, and this is uh, just published, so 2022. Now, look, this is a debut novel. It's a coming-of-age um, immigrant story. We've got the American dream. We're in a post-9-11 uh, landscape, and um, Aziz Amin is a fresh yet sharp voice and I knew from the absolute first sentence that I was going to adore this book. I should love so, it when that happens. Oh, I know. And I just haven't had enough time to, to finish it. So can't wait to get rip into it again tonight. So now um, American Fever is set in 2011. Huh? I'm just laughing because I was trying to work out, does that mean it's historical? Or But we'll <laughs> call it, we'll call it contemporary. That was my bad this morning. Yes, please do. <laughs> so um, our main character says, look, it's 2011. There's a cool guy in the White House as president. <laughs> but she can't understand why people in small town America don't like this guy, this cool guy. So we, we're going to learn a bit more about that. So in the book, we follow um, a young woman called Hira. She's a teenager um, who's come over from urban Pakistan and she goes to a rural small town America uh, as an exchange student. So she's got about a year in America. Um, and for a large part of her trip, unfortunately, she's forced to quarantine because she's diagnosed with um, tuberculosis oh, yeah. when soon after she arrives in America. So um, so she's kind of um, in the quarantine unit looking back on the timeline of events that's um, leading up to her trip overseas from Pakistan, the culture shock of the first few months adjusting to her new surroundings and the actual quarantine period while she's ill. Now, the culture shock is pretty extreme. Hira is a young Muslim woman from um, quite a sophisticated city in Pakistan and she um, goes to live with a white conservative Christian family in small town America. So everything jars. Mm. Now look, I really enjoyed the character of Hira in this book. She was acerbic, abrasive and often annoying as, as teenagers usually are. <laughs> but um, I also found her really easy to warm to and connect with. I I really liked 
the way um, the story is told from um, Hera's point of view as she reflects back on the year. Um, she's very self-aware and um, the she does have um, the a distance of a few years passing since her trip. So she is a slightly older narrator mm-hmm. as she's looking back. She's edgy, cynical, angry. She's got dollops of teenage judginess, which I just love. And in fact, she reminds me somewhat of Holden Caulfield in The Catcher in the Rye. That's Um, one of your favourites, isn't it? Yeah, that is one of my all-time (laughs) favourites. So Hera, when she's in the rural small-town America, she's stuck, she's othered. Um, She experiences all sorts of post-9-11 xenophobia, racism, etc. Look, it's a biting commentary on that um, uh, concept of US exceptionalism, uh, that idea that um, other every other culture is inferior um, to the American one. And um, Hera's host, mother, says things like, I don't want you to leave America. If you leave, I will worry about your safety. <laughs> you know, whereas, which is kind of ironic because mm. she's actually extremely unsafe where, where she is. And, um, you know, that she, um, critiques that concept that history is what happens in other places mm. and, and culture is other people and their experiences. It's not, not us. It's not sort us. Of thing. Mm, interesting. Um, and I loved her observation. She's so smart and sassy. She said, everyone knew about America, the place that would upsell you on the thread count for your deathbed. <laughs> She's so funny. <laughs> And then other things like, um, in time, many of us realise how lofty an accomplishment would be to be only as terrible as our parents. <laughs> so she's naughty, she's funny, but ultimately this is a, it's a very touching, um, coming of age book, but it's so fresh and edgy. Um, it's, it, and, um, is it the American dream? I don't know. Not <laughs> always, I don't think. So look, that's only a, a really small snapshot for you there. American Fever by, uh, Dore Aziz Amna. And it's available in our hard copy and adult fiction. So go for it. You'll love it in a cup. Yeah. Need that one on my list. Although I'm up to my 35 limit as per <laughs> usual. <laughs> Need to return some. Speaking of ones I need to return pretty soon, um, I've been um, down a bit of a historical fiction um, K-hole in the last week, um, mm-hmm. having had a week off and being stuck to my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've got a few historical fiction ones to cover today. And the first one is The Dance Tree by Karen Millwood Hargrave, published in 2022. So this just came out in July, I think. Um, and this this one is set in Strasbourg in France in 1518. We're at the height of a burning summer after multiple years of drought and um, storms and all the the knock-on effects of that. So we've got rising poverty and hunger in this in this town and in the surrounding area. Now, Elizabeth, our main character, lives on a farm at the edge of the city with her husband and his uh, mother, his very grumpy mother-in-law in this book. Um, and Lisbeth is main um, job is to, to tend the house, of course, and to tend the beehives that provide their main income. Um, now, Lisbeth's also in the late stages of pregnancy, and for her, this is really hard one. She's lost 12 babies to miscarriage oh. and stillbirth in the last, I think, six years of their oh, marriage. So, dear. absolutely devastating. Oh. <clears throat> 
Now, the church is is king in this community. Mm. Every, you know, church's power is pretty absolute. Um, it's already a strong presence, but really it's looking for more kind of local um, political strings and power and always looking for more money. So the local authorities um, are, are going around the town looking for um, any excuse to get more money out of the residents. So when they turn up on the doorstep at Lisbeth's place and they're asking for back payment of taxes based on the fact that their bees are visiting other properties to collect pollen to make the honey that they that they sell as part of their income their family is threatened with bankruptcy this crazy back pay mm. on, based on pollen collection so her husband has to go leave the farm and he goes away to plead his case in the big city um, while he's away, Lisbeth's sister-in-law, Agnetha, re- returns and she has been um, away doing seven years of hard penance, locked away in a convent. And this is for a sin that no one will talk about. This is the first time Lisbeth has met Agnetha because they married while Agnetha was often away in the convent. Mm. Now, in Strasbourg itself, in the town, um, we've got this situation where a woman, first one, first then two, three, and then more and more women start dancing in the streets. They're seemingly unable to stop, and their numbers are growing daily. They become sort of a bit of a spectacle. People start to come visiting, to come and see them, and some to join. Um, the town builds these hide stages so that they can dance up on these stages above everybody else to separate from everyone. And they bring in travelling musicians for some reason. They think this is the cure, that, that maybe if they bring musicians in, that the women will dance themselves. Um, you know, they'll dance and then stop. Um, but no, the women dance on and their feet are bleeding and they're collapsing from exhaustion. It's this crazy kind of fever dream happening in this mm. town. So this book takes um, the recorded historical events of an actual dancing plague that happened in 1518 mm. in Strasbourg as its starting point. Um, you may have read about this in the past. There's all the speculation. Was it a bread mould that was causing these LSD sort of acid trips? Was it a mass hysterical event or a psychogenic event which was brought on by the heat and all the hardship? No one really seems to know. And Actually, this is not really the focus of this book. This is just a jumping off point, really, and for a study on the toll, the personal toll um, on women's lives and desires being absolutely directed and suppressed at all levels of society. Um, now, Elizabeth herself, you know, she's got carrying this deep grief and weight from her you know, constantly having lost so many children. Mm. Um, but this is met with little sympathy in her own family. So she has to mourn in secret. She finds this tree in the middle of the woods and she starts creating her own kind of little shrine, adding little strips of cloth for every baby that she has lost. And Agnesa too, the sister-in-law, is wrestling with this this shameful secret that um, in the end it, it has to find an outlet. Now, to be honest, this setup was really fascinating to me. But I thought I would actually enjoy this book more than I ended up um, in doing. Um, I ended up guessing Agnetha's secret pretty early on in the piece, and that took some of that level of suspense out of the big reveal. And I must admit that the situations of all of the women in the book were so grim and seemingly hopeless for much of the book that at times it just felt a bit like walking through the swamp of eternal sadness. Do you remember a never-ending story? Oh, Poor yes. Poor old and his horse. I was sort of dragging yes. through the mud, even though it was mainly dust and heat in this book. And, you know, I'm saying this as somebody who's watched all five seasons of The Handmaid's Tale, which, you know, notably harrowing um, yes. this TV yes. series. 
the, there is hope and solidarity in the book and it does eventually build between the main characters but I think it maybe came a bit late in the piece for me at the time just probably to do with where my mind was at <coughs> excuse me on the plus side, there was a refreshing level of diversity in the cast of this book, which you don't often see in historical fiction, you know, set in in, uh, in the 15th, uh, 16th century. <clears throat> and it was beautifully written and very well researched. Uh, there was also a, quite a hot mandolin player that comes into play later <laughs> on in the piece. <laughs> Your mileage may vary on this one. It depends how much you like mandolins. But um, <laughs> if you like um, reading books by authors like Hannah Kent, who wrote The Good People and Burial Rights, um, Emma Donoghue, um, who wrote The Wonder, which I think is coming out as a movie soon, um, then you should give this one a crack. And you might also like to try Karen Millwood Hargrave's first book called The Mercies, which I think came out in 2020. And that was about um, witch trials on the Norwegian oh. island of Vardo, um, also set around the same time, 1617, that one was. So if you want to try the dance tree, um, you'll find it in our adult fiction collection under historical genre, and you'll find it on Libby as an ebook, and it's also available on CD. Now, I'm staying in the 16th century, Alison, but we're moving mm. um, countries. So from from um, the Alsace region of France, we're moving down to Florence and actually staying in the 16th century. Um, I was have also enjoyed reading this week The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell, which is a pretty hot book right now. Yeah. Um, many of you will have read Hamnet um, in 2020 or 2021 when that came out and enjoyed that one. So I really urge you to pick this one up too. Now, the, the jumping off point for The Marriage Portrait is the poem by Robert Browning um, called My Last Duchess, which um, some listeners may may know. I know, I remember studying it at, at university, I think, so it's like stuck in my mind. Amazing poem. Um, it's a poem about Lucrezia de' Medici, um, who lived from 1545 to 1561, dying in 16 years old. And the poem gives voice to the long-standing rumours that um, Lucrezia de' Medici was murdered by her husband, Alfonso, the Duke of Ferreira, when she was just a young woman. Was she murdered? And if so, why? So this book takes that, that as its jumping off point. Mm. So in this book, we're following Lucrezia and her brothers and sisters. Um, they live in a fortress of privilege with their, the Duke of um, um, Florence and um, their Spanish uh, mother, who is also a princess. Um, they're locked away in the nurseries and in private schoolrooms away from the, the rabble. And they're also locked out of the decision, um, all of those discussions where the decisions are made and all the dynasties are built, of course. Mm. Now, daughters in particular in this family are born to be political pawns. They're brought out on stage and into play when they finally reach a marriageable age, i.e. when their first period starts. And there's quite an um, a interesting scene in the book um, where that becomes a plot point. Now, Lucretia is um, a middle child. She's a curious child, often overlooked in her own family. She's a talented artist who paints in secret and she loves to sneak through the palace at night time when she can get out, um, seeing and hearing things that she's not meant to. Now, her older sister Maria is betrothed to the Duke of Ferreira, so this is in northern Italy, but when Maria dies before her wedding day, 13-year-old Lucrezia is next in line to be shifted into position. 
So in the marriage portrait, we're jumping between two timelines. One takes us from Lucrezia's birth and uh, her childhood through to her betrothal, her wedding day, and her shift from Florence to her husband's family fortress in Ferrara. In the second timeline, Lucrezia is actually near, um, I probably pronounced that wrong, Lucrezia is nearing the end of the first year of an extremely unhappy and lonely marriage. Um, she's under pressure to produce an heir for the family, and she's keeping lots of secrets, her own and others. As we meet her as she's riding on horseback to a remote lodge in the forest with only her husband and his men alongside. And she suddenly has this premonition that he intends to kill her while they are away from home. The second storyline is tightly paced over this tense 24 hours. Um, and it's um, really this heightened sense of where Lucrezia is starting to learn really where her marriage is likely to end up. You get these really vivid descriptions of um, how trapped Lucrezia is. You know, she's she's laced into this multi-layered cage of a wedding gown. She's put into a high silk-draped bed where, and of course, both of these have been prepared for her sister before, and it really evokes that marriage that she's unable to escape from. There is, in amongst the darkness, it's, there is some light. She has this lovely scene where she's on a honeymoon and exploring the gardens for the first time without like an entourage of people chasing after her and making sure that she doesn't go anywhere. Um, she's she's a painter, as I said. She paints these tiny little miniatures and she paints them on top of each other so she hides her own feelings underneath in these hidden mm. paintings Um and there's also some people who are kind of in her court, you know, they're in, they're, they see that she's stuck in this situation um, behind all this artifice of courtly life that she's struggling. Now, Maggie Farrell, of course, is an award-winning author. It's her ninth um, work of fiction for adults, and she won multiple awards for Hamnet in 2020, which, of course, imagined um, the lives of Shakespeare's wife and his children. The marriage portrait does cover some of the same ground. You've got the same 16th century female lead, lots of rich description and beautiful details setting the scene. And there's, um, she writes in the present tense for his historical fiction, which really brings the past so sharply into focus. Some people don't like it. I, I do like it. I really like it. <clears throat> but I did feel with the shift from the rural and domestic setting of Hamnet to the royal, it doesn't have quite that same emotional punch that people might remember from reading Hamlet for the first time. But um, really a sparkling and beautiful book, um, The Marriage Portrait by Maggie Farrell. You'll find it in an old fiction historical. You'll find it as an audiobook, and it's available in large print too. Mm. Oh, thanks for that. That sounds fascinating, actually, but horribly transactional, the, oh. the actual marriage. Yeah, marriages. Oh, dear. Right. Well, um, I'm going to talk about one um, that's also set in Europe. Um, it's also historical, but we move um, right up into the 20th century um, and just after World War II. Uh, so this one is called The Ghosts of Paris, and it's by the writer. Tara Moss, um, published this year, 2022, and it's available in, in multiple formats. Mm. 
So now Tara Moss, she's an interesting um, woman. She's an international best-selling author um, and she's a disability rights advocate. Um, she's written 14 books, I think it's 12 fiction, two non-fiction. Um, hugely high-achieving woman. She's a UNICEF ambassador um, and she's made a significant contribution to feminist debate, um, speaking up for women and children. Um and always inspires others to challenge the status quo. Mm. She's doing a PhD, apparently, at the moment at the University of Sydney. Um, she's also a private investigator. Oh, well, qualified, um, really, I don't know that she's active, actively, but it's so she can write her crime novels. Oh, yeah. And um, she is known to do extensive research for her novels. Um, and she's a dual Australian-Canadian citizen. Mm. So now, um, this um, book, The Ghosts of Paris, it's, look, it's thrilling. It's a tale of courage and secrets. And it's set in post-war Sydney, London and Paris. And basically, we've got a situation where a, a search for a, a missing husband puts um, our main character, who's a um, private investigator and former war reporter called Billy Walker, puts her on a collision course with an underground network of Nazi criminals. Ooh. So, you know, it's it's this is good. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, the story opens in Sydney in 1947, and the world is, is still coming to terms with the you know the fallout of the Second World War, and um, we're introduced to Billy Walker, who's a former war reporter, um, and who was uh, reporting in Europe um, up until the end of the war. She's now back in Sydney, and she's finding her feet as a private investigator. But um, apparently in Australia, they at this time, they were known as um, inquirers, not oh. investigators. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that. So Billy's taken over her late father's business. He was a, um, a well-known um, inquirer. Now, Billy is staunchly feminist. She's a champagne-swilling, fast-car-driving Nazi hunter, actually. And But much of her work in Sydney is in and around the notorious area of King's Cross. Um, and she's dealing with a lot of her work. She's dealing with divorce cases and the, the sort of accompanying sleaze that, that um, goes with that territory. She absolutely hates this side of of the business but it pays the bills and um she we're shown very early on in the book how ethical she is um one of her marriage or divorce cases involves her um being on the tail of a married man um and she actually catches him in a compromising position with another man um and of course this is is terrible for for this this married man because he could go to jail um for this because homosexuality is still illegal in mm. Australia at this stage so she makes a deal with with the target um that she'll photograph him in an embrace with a woman who's actually um an associate of Billy's who happens to be a lady of the night oh. so and then she'll give him the photo of um or she's going to give 
the, the guy's wife the photo of of him embracing the woman so this poor man can just get his divorce done and dusted and then get on his life get on with his life and and not go to jail so um it it's sort of um done quite well you see that she is actually highly ethical mm. So then a wealthy client approaches Billy and her assistant, her male assistant, Sam, um, and hires her to track down her missing husband. So the, they start on the trail of, of this missing husband and it, they, it ends up leading them back to London and Paris. And it's in Paris where Billy's own painful memories are also lurking oh. because Billy's um, husband... Um, they were lovers during the war and then briefly married. Um, this fellow called Jack, Jack Rake, um, he's just, um, I know, it's sort of, <laughs> yes, um, he's one of the millions of people who went missing in Europe during the war. So she sort of ends up, as well as trying to um, find the the other um, missing husband, she actually at the same time starts looking for her own uh. missing husband. So, you know, what was what happened to him after they left Paris together and, and why did they get split up and, you know, what's happened? So her search um, for the client's husband takes her to the Ritz Hotel in Paris, um, Parisian nightclubs, bars, the grim basements of the infamous Paris morgue. Yeah. Um, and she finds that she needs to keep her, her gun at, at the ready because she realises that someone um, is following her. They don't want her to find out what she is about to find out. So, look, this is such a good book. It's fast-paced, but um, it's got really good historical details and references. I think it would make a terrific um, summer read for people. Great beach read. Uh, really, really good. good. Thriller. Ghosts of Paris? Yes. Um, by Tara Moss? By Tara Moss, yes. And um, it's uh, um, available, uh, e-book, Large print, regular print, hard nice. copy, you name it, we've got it. Hey, um, shall I just quickly, I want to um, tell you about one that I'd be really super keen to hear your thoughts on this one. Um, and it's called, It's um, now this is the one that's set in the future, uh -huh. set about 10 years ahead of us from where we sit now. And it's called Girl Crush, and it's by a writer called Florence Given, and it's just published. So now, um, you are probably familiar with her, I would say. Florence Given, um, she's a best-selling feminist author. She's an award-winning podcaster and illustrator. She is based in London. And her first um, book was non-fiction. It was called Women Don't Owe You Pretty. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I thought you would be familiar with this. It was a huge hit, um, a feminist manifesto um, where she challenged outdated patriarchal narratives and she inspired women across the globe. Um, so, and she does a lot of a lot of work in this space and she's using her her platform and her profile to bring women together and and give them a permission slip to define feminism on their own terms. Mm. Now, she's got about something like 200,000 followers on Instagram. Um, and so she does a lot of work um, and has a lot of influence. 
um, confronting oppressive attitudes towards women and their bodies. Um, she's raising awareness around issues such as sexuality, consent, race and gender. Mm. Um, so given that she's so or such an influencer, everyone highly um, or eagerly anticipated this debut novel. So Girl Crush, it's set in the year 2030. And so we're following our main character, who's 20-something, um, whose name is Eartha. We follow her on a wild where weird and seductive modern day exploration as she begins um, life as a, an openly bisexual woman whilst also um, becoming a viral sensation on a social media app called Wonderland. Mm. And on Wonderland, people are actually projecting their dream selves online. But um, as her online self and her offline self become more and more distanced from each other, um, a bunch of trauma comes up from her past um, that that threatens to destroy everything about her present life. She's got to make a choice: which version of herself should she kill off? Ooh, sort of very interesting. Now it sounds as though it's going to be amazing, but I tell you what, it's had real mixed reviews, oh. and a lot of readers have called it a trash fire, oh. which I find quite amusing. Gosh. <laughs> so. Because there were a few things that, to me, even at my age, my advancing age, didn't sort of ring true. So, um, as I said before, Eartha, she's in her mid-20s and it's 2030. Somehow she becomes the voice of a generation by doing this one thing where she drunkenly announces on social media that she's bisexual. Now, this to me doesn't ring true because um, why would something like that be considered so revolutionary in the year 2030 yeah. um, that she'd immediately become a you know, huge influencer? Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so to me, I felt this got the book off to a quite a shaky start. And I'm not the only one who had thought that. I've read that in other reviews. Mm. But um, um, Florence Given has received the most criticism, though, for the handling of Eartha's best, her BFFs. Um, who is the non-binary character, Rose. Um, and it's thought that her the character, uh, Rose, was um, drawn in a very superficial way. I really like the character, Rose, but I wanted to see much more character development. Mm. But um, So I suppose we could say that Girl Crush is an exploration of bisexuality, fem feminism, can't even say it, social media and cancel culture. Um, look, it's the... I loved the cover art. It was amazing. But <laughs> I'd be really curious to know if you agreed with a lot of people that the book is actually a dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It definitely doesn't pass the Nana test in terms of explicit con um, content. But I'd love it if you read it, Inika, because I want to get your thoughts on it. <laughs> well do. Look, I think we've probably run out of time. Big time, actually. I could have talked more about Girl Crush, but um, we'll continue next time. So um, in the meantime, people, happy reading. Until next time, take care. Hi, da, da. 